Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. For Dale taking the time to record that for us, and I'm thankful for all the all the missionaries uh, that we've partnered and, and supported throughout the years. Heaven only knows, heaven only knows, the type of impact that the community at first here has had for the gospel throughout the world. If we were to go around this room, many stories could be shared of how God has used the ministry of First Baptist in your life or in the life of someone you know. And we can go out many concentric circles because as, as the Lord has used uh, ministry here in your life, you then pour your life into other lives. And the ministry of the gospel continues to go forth from the local community. Uh, be, before we open the text this morning, I just want to say a couple of thank yous. I want to thank our staff for working really hard to, uh, to put a lot of this stuff together uh, for this weekend. And so I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for the folks who are going to be serving later today at the First Noel. They're an incredible blessing to me. I also want to thank our decorating team who have helped kind of transform this area. So could we just kind of give them a round of applause this morning? Ministry is not something you can do alone. Not at all. Uh, you, you need a team and you need people to come alongside. And I'm so thankful for each one who has done that. And especially the kids this morning. You, you just never know how you're going to start. And it's great. I absolutely love it. The joy that they bring, the innocence that they bring as we worship the King of Kings. I want to invite you uh, this morning to open your Bibles to the very famous Christmas passage, Genesis 35. Just kidding, for those of you who don't know Genesis 35, it's not a Christmas passage at all. Um, but last week we talked about Jacob's name change, and we're going to talk about the importance of place, the importance of sacred space, and how God meets us. And next week we will launch into a Christmas series from Isaiah chapter 9. So, so there's your Christmas series next week. Isaiah 9 will be, will be next week and the week after. But Genesis 35, we're going to study the first 15 verses together in context of Jacob's life and in context of the importance of place. Um, for our reading this morning, I'm going to be reading from a translation by Dr. Everett Fox. Um, it, it helps maintain some of the lilt and the pattern of the Hebrew. It, it, it does it really well. So um, it may sound a little different than the text that you have in front of you, and I'll go back to my Holman Christian Standard after I'm finished reading this. Uh, but sometimes it's nice to hear a familiar passage uh, translated slightly differently, but he does a great job with the Hebrew here. So would you please stand with me? Genesis 35, verse 1. Now God said to Yaakov, Jacob, Arise, go up to Beit El, Bethel, and stay there, and construct a slaughter site there to the God... El, who was seen by you when you fled from Esau, your brother. Yaakov, Jacob, said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are in your midst. Purify yourselves, change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Beit El, Bethel. There I will construct a slaughter site to the God who answered me on the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. So they gave Yaakov, Jacob, all the foreign gods that were in their hand, along with the sacred rings that were in their ears. And Yaakov, Jacob, concealed them under the oak that is near Shechem. Then they moved on. Now a dread from the god lay upon the towns that were around them, so that they did not pursue Yaakov's sons, Jacob's sons. So Yaakov came back to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, Canaan. That is now Beit El. He and all the people that were with him. There he built a slaughter site, and he called the place Godhead, El of Beit El, or God of Bethel. For there, had been, for there had the power of God been revealed to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rivka, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried below Beit El, beneath the oak, and they called its name Alon Bachut, which means Oak of Weeping. God was seen by Yaakov again when he came back from the country of Aram, and he gave him blessing. God said to him, Yaakov is your name, Jacob is your name, 
Yaakov, Jacob, shall your name be called no more. For your name shall be called Yisrael. And he called his name Yisrael, Israel. God said further to him, I am God Shaddai, El Shaddai. Bear fruit and be many. Nation, yes, a host of nations shall come from you. Kings shall go out from your loins. The land that I gave to Abraham, Abraham, and to Yitzhak, Isaac, to you I give it. And to your seed after you I give the land. God went up from beside him at the place where he had spoken with him. And Yaakov, Jacob, set up a standing pillar at the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a poured offering on it and cast oil upon it. And Yaakov, Jacob, called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Beit El, Bethel, house of God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, thank you for meeting us in places. Thank you for the work that you are doing in, in our lives. Thank you for the ministry of this church that goes back 90 years. God, it's by your sovereign hand, it's by your grace that we stand here today. It, it's, it's not by our own works. It's not by our own ingenuity or craft or skill. Lord, as you have brought us through many things in the almost century, God, we trust you to provide for us this day and in the days to come. God, we pray that as we have heard your word and now as we study it, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon the truth of it so that we might be both hearers and doers of the text. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us this day. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, we pray. Together, together everyone says, amen. amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. So, Genesis, not the most common study at Christmas, but last week, if you were here, uh, you'll remember this. If not, here's a brief recap for you. Last week, we talked about Jacob. You heard Yaakov in there. That's the Hebrew name for Jacob. Uh, Jacob's lifelong journey of wrestling with God. And this comes to a significant climax at the Jabbok River where Jacob wrestles a man whom he identifies as Elohim, God, and he receives a blessing. Now, now, this blessing was significant in that the man changes Jacob's name. And one of the things I talked about last week is that by changing Jacob's name, God not only signifies a new identity, Jacob to Israel, or, or heel grabber to God strives, is how you could translate those, um, he also, God, takes responsibility for Jacob's life. How will Jacob become one in which a nation will be built? Will it be because God strives, Yisrael, God strives on behalf of Jacob. And so Jacob leaves that encounter with God saying, I've seen God face to face and I have been delivered. But he leaves walking with a limp. He had come perfectly fine, but he leaves walking with a limp, which is a permanent reminder of his dependence upon God because the biggest battle Jacob will fight is not against his brother and it's not against his family, it's against himself. The, the, biggest brother, or the biggest fight he's going to have in his struggle forever will be this. Will I yield my desires and my will to allow God to strive on my behalf? Will I receive from the Lord what he wants to give me? Jacob's struggle is our struggle. After trusting the work of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross to pay for our, our sins, we, we continue to learn the process of yielding in our lives so that he may work in us and through us with great power. And one of the things we talked about last week is this is not easy, nor is it natural. We naturally want to control situations. We, we want to control our lives. We think that by holding on to things, we have the power over the outcome. And one of the things that God wants us to hear constantly in our lives is that by releasing our hold upon things and receiving what God wants to give us, we actually find more joy and we find more purpose and more meaning in God's will rather than our own. And so I just ask you as a question for you to think about this morning, have you surrendered your will to God today? Have you prayed Lord, give me your will for my life. 
May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's your recap from last week. So this morning, we're going to talk briefly about the theology of place, or sacred space is the other way you could, you could define it. Places are important in the scripture. Um, in, in the biblical narrative, they, they mark significant events. And we understand this naturally when we, when we think about it. Um, for example, we were home a week or so ago in Ohio, home being where my wife and I are from. And as we were driving through Centerville, Ohio, we passed the world's famous Bill's Donuts that made it on TV. And, you know, that's a, kind of like a stomping grounds for us. We go past Stubbs Park, which means nothing to most of you, but it's a park that Dawn and I used to eat lunch at when she was on her lunch break. And so as we're going along, I'm like, hey, kids, over there is where, you know, because they're like, oh, Dad, we haven't been here in six months. You know, why do we have to rehearse this again? Um, we even went past a, um, a Sam's Club, and I said, kids, there's a Sam's Club, and they must have thought I was crazy, but I said, that's the place where after my grandpa would sometimes pick me up from school, we'd go and we'd get to have a soda or a pop or whatever you want to call it, um, but, but there are memories attached to places, memories attached to places. Um, and God uses places all throughout the scripture. For example, in Moses' life, he appears to Moses it, on the side of a hill in the wilderness where there's a bush that's burning, but it doesn't burn up. And Moses goes, that's weird. And he approaches it, and God says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. You, you have Hagar, who, who goes away, and she's about to die. She's underneath a broom tree, and, and the Lord comes to her and meets her there. You have Jonah, who had this whole thing about disobedience, and then he was swallowed by a fish by God's command. I think he probably remembered fish for the rest of his life. You have Gideon, who's in a threshing floor, you know, where, where they do wheat. And, and God appears to him, and he's like hiding from, from the inhabitants of the land, and, and, and the Lord appears to him, and he says, greetings, mighty warrior. And it's <laughs> kind of crazy. God meets people in places. He meets Paul on the, road, um, uh, on the road to Damascus. Blinding light changed his life. God meets people in places. Some of you have experienced God profoundly in significant places. For example, some of you in this room have been on a, a bike trip. For many years, our church did this bike trip, and it's where you grab a whole bunch of high schoolers with a whole lot of planning and a great team of leaders, and you, you send them on 350-ish miles of biking over the course of about five days. And you're praying, Lord, get everyone there safe, get everyone there sound, and give us strength for today. Um, but some of you came to know Christ on bike trip. Some of you rededicated your life to Christ on a trip like a bike trip. Um, some of you have been a part of prayer meetings or special events here within this building or within other people's homes, and, and, and the Lord has, has shown you things about your life and has helped grow you in a way that you remember. You remember place, and you remember what God did there. Some of you, going back many years, um, or several years, um, were a part of Boys Brigade, or maybe a part of a WANA, maybe a part of children's ministry, even within the last, 15, or the last 13 years since I've been here, and you as a young person ha have come to trust Jesus. You've come to give him your life because the gospel was made clear to you. You've come to, to take that next step in trust. Um, some of you have met with people from this community at a restaurant or a home, and there have been important conversations that you've had seated across the table. Some of you have been on mission trips. Many of you have been on mission trips. And in those mission trips, God has used that to transform your life in a way you never dreamed possible. While you're in the Middle East or you're in Africa or you're in Asia, God has broken your heart for the things that break his. You've become more prayerful. You've become more God-centered. You even heard it from, from Dale on that video. On a mission trip that was for the kids, God spoke to him in Montana, and he said, I want you to have a different course of life. Some of you have, have been involved in community groups or small groups, or you've met with mentors who've helped disciple you towards Christ, and that has left a mark in your life. Some of you, I, I was talking with, with some dear worshipers here several weeks ago, and they were telling me about really the 90-year history of this church, and they fondly remembered raising their family within a context of faith. 
And not just faith, but a faith community where, where the lives and the relationships around you matter because as you seek to love your kids and you seek to parent your kids well, you need encouragement and boy, do you need prayer. As you're walking through difficulties in marriage, you need people to come alongside you to encourage you to also show you the truth of Scripture so that you can honor God the best way possible. But God meets people in places. Even this building, this building, Think of all the times people have gathered, and it didn't look like this 90 years ago at all. We've got some photos later. Uh, but, but, but this building, there's been singing, there's been praying, there's been teaching, there's been hard conversations, there's been rejoicing. So sometimes I sit in my office and I think about the gravity of the conversations that have taken place in that space. I only know a fraction of them. I've only been a part of a fraction of them. But God meets people in places. And this morning, we're looking at a place. We're looking at the place in Genesis 35 of Beit El, or Bethel. I'll probably say Beit El most of the time, because that's how it is in the Hebrew, and there's, there's a reason I pronounce it that way as well. But, but God meets Jacob there. Places, though, and hear me on this, while places are important in the biblical narrative, places are insignificant apart from God's presence. Places are insignificant apart from God's presence. But God used places in our life to help us remember and to recount what he has done to give us courage and hope as we continue in faithfulness. And so we have read our translation this morning, and you'll notice a lot of naming of places in these 15 verses. Please look with me. We'll kind of go through this briefly and then have some concluding thoughts Briefly is, of course, a relative term. God says to Jacob in verse 1, he says, get up, go to Bethel. So I want you to notice, Jacob goes to Bethel by God's command. Why does God tell Jacob to go to Bethel? Well, often in the text, when you see a place name, there's significance attached to what happened here prior. And as we've already talked about, God has previously appeared to Jacob here. In Genesis 28, Jacob sets a memorial stone to remember that this is God's house. Beit El, um, it's, it's a compound word. It comes from the word bayit. Can you say bayit? Bayit. That means house in Hebrew, okay? Bayit. Beit is a form of that word. And then El is God. Say El. All right, so say so Beit El. Beit El. Okay, there you go. Hold on to that. You'll need that later. Um, Bethel is a place that Jacob names because it's God's house. It's where God has met him. He received divine revelation that the promises to his father and his grandfather would be given to him and, and that God would bless the world through Jacob and the many children that he would have and their children and their children and their children. He devoted himself to the worship of the Lord if God kept his promises. That's what happens in Genesis 20. At the end of it, God makes this unconditional covenant with him, and then Jacob says, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then you will be my God. Well, God has done this, this, and this, and this, and this. He's fulfilled his part, and God says to him, Jacob, get up and go to Bethel. Um, Beit El, Bethel, is filled with memories. It's not the only place where Jacob has memories, but it's a very significant one. A very significant one. And so when God commands Jacob to go up, his family was 20 miles north in a, in a city called Shechem, where two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, had plundered the local inhabitants for disgracing their sister. And it left, uh, the, the previous chapter was pretty bloody towards the end of it. So, um, so, so God says, go up to Bethel. And, and the phrase here, go up, is a, is a phrase that communicates pilgrimage. It's a way that this word is being used in a way that Jacob is being reminded of his responsibility to worship the Lord in keeping with his vow. And so verse 1, God says, go up. He says, build an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And in verses 2 through 5, here's what Jacob does. He says to his family and all who were with him, in other words, his whole household, he being the household leader, he says, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who has answered me. So, so he's hearing and obeying God, but he knows that as he goes up, he and his family must do some important things. That is this, prepare their hearts for worship. 
all right? The, the first few verses here is essentially an ancient worship service. And notice how they come. They don't just show up. They, sh- they, 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 they begin to go, but before they do that, they get rid of their foreign gods. They, they had other gods that they had accumulated along the way. And, and, and this wasn't necessarily um, unheard of in this time. It was... It was often practice that you'd have a personal God for this and a personal God for this. You might have a God for rain. You might have a God for fertility. You might have a God for something else. And all along the way, they'd begun to pick up all these foreign gods. And and their life became marked not by soul devotion to the Lord God. It became marked by many gods. So the first thing Jacob does is he says, get rid of the foreign gods. We are going to worship the Lord and the Lord alone. He says, change your clothes. Now, they just come from a fairly bloody encounter, and so there's a literal aspect to this, but it's also a figurative aspect. He's basically saying, clean up literally and spiritually as you approach God in worship. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. When you and I come to worship God, one of the practices that should be apparent in, in growing in our lives is that as we come, we begin personally and individually preparing ourselves for worship, which means getting rid of the things that we have trusted as gods throughout the week. And we say, no, God, I'm here for you. Sometimes we come in, and I'm guilty of this as well, um, with 14 other things on our mind. Sometimes it's a conversation with a spouse, sometimes it's a conversation with kids, but, but Jesus even ties into this, and he, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, there you remember that you are in conflict with someone else. He says, what? Leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled, and then come and offer your gift. Coming to the Lord with a purity of heart. Now, it's not you that makes you know, your life pure, but confessing your sin to God and saying, God, Please forgive me for this. That is a fantastic way to begin any worship service. And it sets a a significant, distinct tone. But he says, um, get rid of foreign gods, change your clothes. I will build an altar. Jacob's being obedient to God's commands. And so it says in verse 4 that they gave Jacob foreign gods and earrings. All right? They they gave Jacob foreign gods and earrings. Now, One scholar says this, before the age dominated by reason, it was common in the ancient world to trust gods and superstitions. And earrings demonstrate loyalty. For example, we find in Exodus 21, a master would pierce his servant's ear. And one of the things that would do is it would demonstrate lifelong service to him. Um, So giving up an earring is another demonstration that their loyalty is is not to their master, but it is to God. It's interesting. He says, give up everything, and their master is asking them that. They take off the earrings that show devotion to Jacob because they are to be a people wholly devoted to the Lord. So um, as they go, verse 5, God divinely protects Jacob and his family. And they go up to Beit El. And in verses 6 and 7, you'll notice that, that Jacob uh, builds an altar there, and he calls the place El Beit El, or God of Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself when he was fleeing his brother. All right? God, El of Beit El, God of the house of God. Um, in verse 8, uh, there's another naming of a place. Uh, it's Alombakuth, which means oak of weeping, and it's named because there's a loss of a loved one. Deborah, who was Rebecca, so he's Jacob's mom's nurse, died. She was apparently well-loved by their community. And they mourned her loss, and they celebrated uh, her life by naming it oak of weeping. So God appears in verse 9 to Jacob again after returning from Padanaram, and he blessed him. And God says, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. God is reiterating the name that he gave to Jacob. This, this happened in chapter 32, but he's reiterating it. And he's going to then further comment on it. God has given Jacob his covenant promises. He's taken responsibility for the spiritual change by giving him a new name. In other words, it would be God who would strive on Israel's behalf to bring these promises to fulfillment. Yet Jacob was in a covenant relationship with God and called to worship the God who dwelt with him. 
So, verses 13 through 15 uh, indicate, uh, well, actually, verse, um, verse 11, look at that with me. God also said to him, I'm God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, a nation, indeed an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give to you the land that I, give, that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. This is the extension of God's promise to the patriarchs. Jacob, in verses 14 and 15, sets up a marker at the place, a stone marker, pours a drink offering on it, anoints it with oil, and he named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. All right, so all this takes place at Bethel, the place where God speaks to him. Why does this matter? You might be asking yourself that question right now. Why does this matter? Sacred spaces, and I've already used that term, but sacred spaces are, are, are places where God meets people. Bethel is significant because God reveals himself there. Um, one scholar says this, and I think this is, this is helpful. He says, sacred spaces in the ancient world are, a, are sites at which God is known to be accessible because he has revealed himself to be present there. Let me say that again. Sacred spaces in the biblical narrative, and they're very important, they're sites at which God is known to be accessible. You know that if you go there, you will encounter the Lord because the Lord has revealed himself to you there. God is known to be accessible because he has revealed himself to be present there. We see very sacred spaces like the temple in Jerusalem, like the tabernacle as it dwelt with Israel. Jacob lived with a belief that God would meet him here, in part because God told him to go there, but also because he had experienced God there before. He had experienced God there before. Jacob's life demonstrates several instances where God meets him. But here is an important distinction that we must make. While sacred spaces were places where God met with people, Today, we experience sacred space in a different way. We experience sacred space in a different way. Turn with me, please, to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 45. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In the, in the New Testament, John, 41, or sorry, John 1, verses 45 and following. There's something I, I came upon last week that I just have to show you. In John 1, we have a whole bunch of stuff. You know, it talks about the word becoming flesh, making his dwelling among us. We, we come towards the end of the chapter, and Jesus is calling his disciples. All right, he's, coming, he's calling these people to come follow him. John chapter 1, verse 45. Uh, let's go to verse 43, actually. Why not? Um, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, he, Jesus, decided to leave for Galilee. Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is a true Israelite. No deceit is in him. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Now, one of the things I want you to notice before I read verse 51 is Nathanael's confession. He says this, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. God tells Jacob in chapter 35 of Genesis, you don't need to turn there unless you haven't marked. God says to him, I'm God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, a nation, indeed an assembly of nations will come from you and kings will descend from you. You're the king of Israel, Nathanael says to him. Then Jesus said to him in verse 51, then he said, I assure you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
When was the last time we saw the heavens opened and angels descending and ascending? Jacob, right? What is Jesus saying here? In Jacob's experience with the Lord at Bethel in chapter 28, they're ascending and descending, and Jacob's talking to the Lord. But here it says, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is a title that is used for the Messiah. You find it most notably in the book of Daniel. And it's a title that Jesus, of course, because he's the Messiah, he takes upon himself, Son of God and Son of Man. We've actually seen both of those things. He's a man born from Nazareth. He's the Son of Man, but he's also the Son of God. Now, um, as Jesus is talking to Nathaniel, Nathaniel is a good student of the text. When Jesus says, angels of God ascending and descending, Nathaniel's mind went, this is Genesis 28. <laughs> this is the Lord I'm speaking with. Sacred space at the incarnation of Jesus Hear me, sacred space becomes something very important. It becomes a sacred person, right? Where it used to be that God would meet with people in places, but God didn't dwell permanently with people. In Jesus, God not only fully dwells. In Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we come to faith in him, our Messiah, God takes up residence inside of us. Jesus is basically saying, you want to experience the presence of God. You, you, you want to see greater things. You have to come to me. Elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It, it's an unusual image but here is, um, here's uh, Blake Hearson, who's a scholar. He says this, and this is really helpful in sum- summarizing. He's, he's saying this. Jesus is claiming that Jesus himself is the stairway. He is the sacred space, the means by which the believer has communion with God, the Father in heaven. Instead of being linked to sacred space, connection with God was now through the person of the Messiah, Jesus. And then through him, the followers of God would never need worry about being cut off from God again. Imagine this. There was a point in time before the arrival of Jesus, before the sending of the Spirit, where followers of Yahweh walked, not having the Holy Spirit to indwell them and to empower them for righteous living. Now, that reality is very difficult for me, at least, to understand, because I don't know what it's like, except for being apart from Christ, which was several years back. I I don't know what it's like to to, to walk in that way, to say, I want to love God, but I need help, because the, the Holy Spirit is within me. But on the other hand, I do know what that's like, because so much of my life is spent saying, oh, this is really what I want, and picking up my own burdens and picking up my own worries and picking up my own fears and saying, I can carry all this. Through Jesus, we come to God through Jesus alone. Now, places are still important. They they, they can still bring memory to important events. But one of the things that must always remain central in our lives as followers of Jesus and, and in our lives as a local church is that Jesus is the Savior of the world and he is the Messiah. And that must always be our first starting place because as I talked about last week, unless we find our identity continually in him and in what he has done, we quickly go off the rails. We, we begin to, to, to live by our own strength, by our own power, by our own flesh, and that rarely leads us, never leads us anywhere helpful. Ephesians 3. This text came to me earlier this week. Ephesians 3 records a prayer of Paul. And his prayer goes like this. I, I pray that the Messiah, Jesus, would dwell in the hearts of believers through faith. One of the things that struck me is, is um, 
I was doing a little bit more research, and I, and I told you, Beit El, Bethel, Bait means house. El means God. The word that's used in Ephesians 3.17, that Christ would dwell in your hearts, it's the word oikos. Can you say oikos? Okay, do you know what the word oikos means? That's okay if you don't. It means house. It means house. All right? It's a very cool Greek word. It, it, in other words, just like God met Jacob at the house of God. That's what it was named because Jacob experienced God there. Paul says to the Ephesian believers, I, I pray that Christ would be the place in which you dwell, that, that, that Christ would dwell in you, that you would dwell in Christ and that you would walk forward knowing that God lives in you. I'm greatly paraphrasing there. I'll read the whole thing in just a minute. But the idea of dwell is incredibly important because we no longer dwell in places alone. We dwell with the eternal God taking up residence in us through his Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? I hope it's cool to you. I thought it was cool to me. In other words, you and I become a place where God dwells when we trust the Messiah by faith. There's a place, of course, Jacob names it Beit El. And when you come into relationship with God, guess what your name could be changed to in, in a figurative way here? Your name could be changed to Beit El. You are a house of God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're a person in whom God dwells and empowers by his life to live a new way. But there's only one way to get there. And that's Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, the one who came, the one who lived a perfect, sinless life, the one who makes, the one who died, the one who rose again. And the scripture says that by, by believing in his name, by trusting him and him alone with your sin, can you have life? A lot of us spend our lives trying to create life for ourselves. We do, but there's only one way to have life, and that's to become a house or a sanctuary of God. Are you a sanctuary of God? Are, are you a person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells by faith? If you're not, you can become one today the consistent teaching of the scripture and something that we have taught for year upon year upon year upon year is that it's only through Jesus that you can come to God. And here's how you do it. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have wandered far, far from you. Lord, forgive me for my sin. I trust the work of Christ's death and his resurrection alone. The scripture says that by believing in Christ and what he has done, you have life in his name. And the Holy Spirit takes upon residence inside of you and you become a sanctuary in whom the Lord dwells. Are you a sanctuary? If you're not, I would love to talk with you afterwards. But if you are a sanctuary, if you're a person who's been following Jesus for one, two, three months, uh, five months, uh, 10 months, five years, 10 years, 20, 50, 60, 70, 80, and so on. If, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, I have another question for you, and that's this. What kind of sanctuary are you? What kind of sanctuary are you? Um, one of the things I mentioned a, a minute ago, one of the things we like to do, sorry, Ken, I'm going to grab some of your stuff here, um, is we like to pick up things, all right? We like to pick up, we like to pick up um, water so that we're healthy, and uh, exercise. We, we like to pick up um, earbud case because we're a musician and we find some identity there. We like to pick up um, these things which do something. Um, we like to pick up this which brings the Christmas spirit into our lives. You can hardly hear that without thinking of that. We, we like to pick up a lot of things that bring identity to us. It might be your job. It might be your family. 
It might be your kids. It, it, it might be experiences back in your memory. It, we, we like to pick up a lot of things and say, I'm defined by this, or I'm defined by this, or I'm defined by this, or I'm defined by this. And sometimes we pick up things that are really difficult. We, 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 pick, up, um, we pick up ailing family members. We pick up divorces and difficult marriages. We, we, we pick up kids who are far from the Lord. We, we, we pick up trying to um, do our best, but never knowing if we're good enough. And Jesus says, when, when you come to me, there's a certain way I want you to come. I want you to get rid of all the idols in your life, i.e. Jacob, get rid of all these foreign gods among you, because we're going to meet the Lord. What happens when you get rid of idols? Well, you, you start throwing stuff down. Sorry, Ken. That was mine. You start throwing stuff down. And pretty soon, all you're left with are open hands. You know what open hands are a symbol of? Worship. And I love the posture of open hands. And for, for those of us in West Michigan tradition, it's not maybe always the most comfortable thing that we do. But, but I love the posture of open hands because it does two things. It reminds us, God, we don't want to cling to anything except you. But it also is a posture in which we receive what God has for us. The posture of worship what kind of sanctuary are you? If someone were to look at your life and they would say, how, who is that person? What are they defined by? What, 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 how do they live by? Are they a person? Are you a person in whom God dwells richly, in which you receive what he has to give and you give what you have for his glory and for his honor? We all carry a lot of stuff. Some of it's really, really heavy. But the best place to go with both the, the good and the heavy is to the Lord. Worship is one of those things that not only ascribes to God rightly what is due him, it also reminds us of his work in our lives. I don't have all the answers for everything. I'll just tell you that. I don't have the answers for, fully for problems of pain and problems of suffering, problems of sin. I, I mean, there's, there's answers in the scripture, but some things even go beyond our understanding here on earth. They're, they're too difficult to fathom. But what the Lord wants to do in us is not always give us all the answers, but he wants us to become people who say, Father, Abba, Holy is your name. May your name be sanctified. God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our sufficient needs for this day. Lord, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what God wants our lives to be. Worship communion, dwelling with the God who dwells in us, becoming houses of God here on earth. So when you walk around your, your place of work or your home or your school, you become a person that people look at you and they see and they experience God. What kind of sanctuary, what kind of dwelling place are you today? I want to give you about just 30 seconds, minute or so, to spend in prayer because it's important for us sometimes to just have space, to repent, to confess, to pray to God and to ask God, God, show me where I replace you and God, help me to walk in newness of life. And so I'll just give you a few, a few moments here. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the lie of thinking that you plus anything else would equal godliness. God, it is you and you alone that we come to this morning.
the Messiah Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. The one who came to this earth, who tabernacled, who dwelt among us. God, the one who lives and dwells in our hearts through faith. We come to you with our worries, with our fears, with our burdens, and God, we don't always have answers, but we do know that because you live and because you dwell in us, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, especially in our greatest moments of weakness, especially in our greatest moments of fear. And so God, we release these things to you. We say, God, be glorified in our lives. God, empower us by your spirit to walk in your teaching. May people see Jesus in us this day, this month, this year, and for all the days of our lives. We pray in the name of the risen Messiah, Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. I want to ask you to do something with me. If you, if you would love to, to just say to God, God, here I am in worship. Here I am in expectation for you to live through me. God, I, I, I give you all my stuff. Would you just raise your hands? And would you sing this with me? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you In the late 1920s, there were a number of people in Zealand who were interested in receiving more Bible teaching. They wanted a place in Zealand where they could invite Bible speakers from places like Moody Bible Institute to come and teach them. The pastors of the existing churches in Zealand were not interested in having these types of people speak in their churches. As a result, in 1929, a group of men, including DJ Dupree, Herman Miller, George Heisinger, and Ben Deswan pooled their resources and built a hall where these types of meetings could be held. The facility was called the Bible Witness Hall. This was about the time of the Great Depression. Resources were limited, and the hall was not an impressive structure. In fact, many in the community called it the chicken coop. The hall hosted many special speakers, and they also began to hold Sunday afternoon Bible classes there. After a while, there were a group of people who were receiving most of their spiritual nourishment and fellowship in the meetings at the Bible Witness Hall. So they banded together to form the Bible Witness Assembly. They called a pastor and began holding worship services. The congregation of the Bible Witness Assembly was passionately committed to five major things. The fundamentals of faith, preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, believers' baptism, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, and the importance of world missions and outreach to our community. Since most people in the community had no idea what kind of things a Bible Witness Assembly might believe, the congregation changed its name after a while to First Baptist Church. The church grew gradually through the years and weathered quite a few storms along the way. Some of these storms were due to external events, such as economic hardships, wars, and other widespread movements in history. Others were due to internal challenges, such as how to cope with growth when the various facilities the church built along the way became too small. By God's grace, He has brought us through each of these storms, and we look to His continued leading in the future as we pursue knowing Christ and making Him known. Thank you.
So happy birthday. Happy birthday. You can clap. It's okay. If you want to see that again or see the, the video from Dale Stewart again, we'll have those available on our socials and stuff later. Uh, if you want a copy of them, I, we can figure out a way to get that to you as well. We also have something for you if you'd like to take a sticker or a pen that have our new logo and everything on it. Uh, those will be available by people by the doors back there. Um, I want to say thank you. Um, did that, did that? Oh, this afternoon. Uh, four o'clock is when we're going to begin First Noel. First Noel is our, I think it's our fourth annual, third annual, fourth annual time of carols and celebrating Christmas. It is very kid-friendly. I invite you to come back as we uh, hear the message of the gospel from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we sing many, many great old carols of our faith. And um, I also want to say this. Uh, thank you to the kids who sang this morning. Could we say thank you to them again? Yeah. I want to, I know that's a big deal. It's a big deal to stand up there. Hey, dude, come on up. You're good. You can hang with me any day. <laughs> Say hi. All right. It's my buddy. My kids are over there somewhere too, but <laughs> good to see you. Hey, you don't have to hide. Um, so, uh, uh, so kids, thank you so much. Also, thanks to parents and grandparents. I know it's an early morning to get your kids here early. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being involved in their life, for showing them and sharing with them the good news of Jesus. And thank you to those leaders as well. So having said all that, I want to say last uh, guests who are with us, thank you so much for joining. I, I know some of you are grandparents. I know some of you are aunts and uncles or cousins. And some of you are just guests to this community. Cool. Uh, um, I know some of you are just guests here. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. If there's anything we can do to serve you this morning, nope, we're not going to play that, though. <clears throat> Thank you. I just get distracted because if there's music going, it's hard for me to talk and that. Thank you. Um, and so thank you so much for uh, whatever I was saying. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this part I have, though. This part I have. Philippians, or sorry, not Philippians, stand right here next to me. You can, you can hang with me, okay? This is Paul's uh, prayer for um, the Ephesian believers. Would you stand with me? This is our benediction for today. Paul says this, For every reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth is named. I pray that he might grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his Spirit and that the Messiah might dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, I pray that you, that's a plural there, by the way, being rooted and firmly and established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled, church, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think or according uh, to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in the Messiah Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And together we say, amen. amen. You are dismissed. Blessings. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.